Well, good morning. I say that even though I've already been up here once. This morning we're back in Luke. This is a great book. Uh, three weeks ago, Jackson introduced the book showing us that Luke wrote this to establish the facts. He uh, went to Jerusalem, um, interviewed all of the, the, the principal witnesses. He uh, probably talked to uh, Mary, maybe Jesus' brothers and sisters, almost certainly to all the uh, apostles who were still alive and there at the time. And probably traveled around some of the Roman world talking to people who had been there and were witnesses, taking their statements, collecting documents. Um, he probably had a copy of Mary's song, of Zechariah's prophecy. May have even uh, interviewed a uh, couple of the uh, shepherds. He almost certainly had a copy of uh, Mark's gospel that he used uh, as a source document to, to follow up and, and, and to investigate. Now, why did Luke do all this? Why did he go through all this trouble? Well, in that first paragraph in Luke, we're told that he did this for Theophilus. In fact, um, the uh, book of Acts, Luke's history that we call the book of Acts, starts with a, a, a similar statement. First line of that book is, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And he goes on to talk about all the apostles did and taught, especially the apostle Paul. Now again, who is Theophilus? And why did Luke write all of this stuff down for him? I think the best explanation is that Theophilus was Paul's attorney. Paul had been arrested, was waiting to go on trial before Caesar. And Luke, who was a physician by trade, a scientist, acts as the, the investigator for the defense, collecting all of this information to help Theophilus, Theophilus excuse me, prepare the defense. Johnny Cochran and F. Lee Bailey weren't available. And I am not sure Paul would have chosen them if they were. But Theophilus needs to, to lay out all of the facts, what actually happened, in order to refute the uh, frame job that was being built against Paul. You know, who says that uh, the scriptures aren't true to modern life? Incidentally, Paul was acquitted after spending two years in prison. But anyway... Luke does this meticulous, systematic job of, of investigating, researching, establishing every fact, every word. And we are the beneficiaries of all of that work. We see, uh, Luke was not merely a skillful and disciplined investigator. He was a man of letters as well. His literary skill is apparent in the way he organizes his material. He doesn't just list the facts out on a yellow pad. He develops and interweaves his stories to, to create and establish themes. And what he's doing in the passage we are looking at this morning and the passages we've been looking at is he, he's, he's doing some preparation, some prologue, preparing the story for the coming of the main character for Jesus. See, our section here is really all about preparation. Now, there's one more uh, background point I want to make. Now, why are we studying this book? Well, we spent last summer in the uh, Minor Prophets, ending up with Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. And, and Malachi ends with a promise uh, of the coming uh, of the Messiah, promise uh, of the, the coming of the one 
who will fulfill all of the problems and all the yearnings of the Old Testament. See, the Old Testament ends with this prophecy of what Malachi calls the one or the Lord you desire. The Lord you are seeking. See, the Old Testament ends with the promises of Jesus, the one our hearts really long for. You see, all of these promises had gone waiting, had lain there for 400 years. God's people waited 400 years. That's a long time. 400 years ago was 1595. Elizabeth I, the daughter of King Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, was on the throne in England. The Spanish Armada had just been defeated. Uh, Sir Isaac, um, not Sir Isaac, Sir Francis, that's him, Francis Drake, was uh, roving around the Atlantic, spoiling Spanish treasure ships. The, the English had not yet begun to seriously colonize the New World. Now think about it, that is a long time ago. And for 400 years, God's people had waited, and God had remained silent. Israel had been conquered, first by the Persians, then by the Greeks, now by the Romans. They had been under Roman rule for a couple hundred years, or over a hundred years, excuse me. And they're waiting. Things were dark. The religion of the land had become a cold, sterile, pharisaical, hopeless religion. People had settled in to to, uh, empty, drudgery-filled lives that were riddled with sickness and demon possession. Things were bleak and dark. Darkness covered the face of the earth. But then some things began to happen. God visited an old couple, an elderly priest by the name of Zechariah, his wife Elizabeth, God visited a, a young girl by the name of Mary. You know, little hints that God was on the move. Nothing big that anybody or that most people would notice. Just little hints that God was on the move. Two weeks ago, uh, when Larry Crabb was here, he used an illustration that I think fits perfectly. When Larry was here, I complained to him that one of the liabilities of having a conference in your own church is that when you steal the illustrations, everybody knows where you got them. He uh, suggested that I tell you all that I gave him the illustrations, but uh, even though that's not true, it was a uh, generous gesture. Anyway, he drew an analogy between uh, this kind of thing and, and what was happening in the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that, but there's in, in those books there is a, 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 an imaginary world, a, a created world by C.S. Lewis. And in that world, the White Witch has taken over the entire world, and everything is frozen and desolate. The way he put it was uh, always winter, but never Christmas. And then at one point, the inhabitants of that world begin to hear the the sound of water dripping, icicles melting on the trees. They began to see little tiny patches of green start showing up. And those who were paying attention saw the signs. Aslan is on the move. See, their hopes 
sword. They, they were sure of their redemption. It hadn't happened yet, but they knew it was going to happen because Aslan was on the move. That's the same thing we see happening here in Luke. God is on the move. Hasn't happened yet. Right now it's whispers in the dark when, when Zechariah and Elizabeth were, were going through these things. But for those whose heart was attuned to God, the signs were unmistakable. And their, their hopes soared. They became excited. They got ready. They, they prepared themselves for His coming. That hope in the midst of despair, in the midst of the darkness, is so necessary to prepare our hearts for His coming. See, it was those who, who caught that hope that were ready when Jesus came on to the scene. This passage that we're looking at is all about hope, all about preparation. So let's take a look at it. Turn with me to Luke 1. We're going to start about verse 57. I want to divide this section from here to the end of the chapter into three parts. The first section is the preparation for Zechariah's message. That's 57 through 66. Then there's preparation for Jesus. 67 through 75. And then John's preparation for ministry, 76 through 80. Let me uh, just read through this first part, 57 through 66. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, his name shall be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Now, you all remember what uh, happened to Zechariah about nine months earlier when he was in the temple. Angel Gabriel came to him and told him that uh, he and his elderly wife, Elizabeth, were going to have a son. And unlike Mary who asked when, they, when Gabriel visited her, how can these things be? She, she knew she was a virgin and couldn't be pregnant by natural means. Zechariah asked, how can I believe this is true? You see, those are very different questions. And because of Zechariah's disbelief, God struck him unable to speak until the child was born. He was struck dumb. So for nine months, Zechariah could not talk. So here, after the baby is born, the neighbors and the family all come over on the eighth day, the day that boy babies were circumcised and named. And they just assume they're going to name him Zechariah. Children were often named after their father in those days. They would call him Ben Zechariah, son of Zechariah. But Elizabeth speaks up and says emphatically, no. His name's going to be John. Now, uh, aside from the fact that Zechariah the Baptist doesn't really roll off the tongue, I think it's also true that uh, Elizabeth had heard from Zechariah. He had communicated her probably in writing. 
what the angel had said about the name. But the people, they're not satisfied with this. So they uh, make all these hand motions and sign language to, to Zechariah to ask him what he wants the baby to be named. Now, I have no idea why they did it in sign language. We're not told that Zechariah was deaf. We're told that he was unable to speak, but maybe he was deaf. Anyway, he gets his tablet and he writes on that tablet, His name is John. Period. I'm told that they were amazed. As we've been studying and seeing in, in the Minor Prophets, names are important. And the name that God chooses for this baby, John, means the grace of God or the mercy of God. Let me ask you, when you think of John the Baptist, do you think of grace? Do you think of mercy? Or do you think of fire and brimstone, this, this prophet out in the desert screaming at everybody to repent? But you see, John's coming and John's message was grace. It was mercy. He did call on these people to repent, but they needed to repent. They needed to face themselves and their sin. They needed to know that they needed a Savior. You see, it's God's grace that convicts us of sin. It's His mercy that opens our eyes so that we see how we are uh, using our wives selfishly, how we're careless of our children, how we, uh, our hearts are, are, are focused on our own comfort and ambition, how our inclination is away from God. See, this was, was the message of Malachi, that, that we drift from our God, that we hurt Him, with our cold indifference, that we repulse Him by our sham religion. You see, God doesn't show us these things to destroy us. He doesn't convict us of sin to push us away. He does it because He loves us. He wants to draw us in. He wants us to turn to Him, to find healing for our souls, to find peace, to find satisfaction and rest. See, John's mission was a mission of grace. Because until we recognize that we need salvation, we will never embrace the Savior. The first step in finding hope, in spite of all of our strong feelings to the contrary, that first step in finding hope is to face ourselves honestly and to let that crush us. It feels like it will destroy us feels like it will kill us to face our sins and and, and the way we cover up. And in a sense, it will. But unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, new life can't come. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, hope lies not in denial, but in the Savior. Now, what is the uh, real point of this little section that we just looked at? Why did God actually strike um, Zechariah dumb? I'm sure it was because of his disbelief. But in the uh, bigger picture, in the plan of God, I think it was to prepare these people to hear him. This man had been mute for nine months, and now when he speaks, people listen. We're told that they were filled 
with awe. Not only them, but everyone around. The, the word had spread. And because of that awe, when he spoke, they remembered what he said. It made an indelible impression. You know, the jury in the OJ trial was silent for nine months. But when they spoke, we listened. In fact, most of us know where we were when we heard it. And we remember it. Or who doesn't uh, remember when, with awe, we heard Neil Armstrong say, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. You see, that awe drills that into our minds. I think God had prepared these people to hear and to remember Zechariah's message. So what did Zechariah say? He said, uh, let me just read the first part of what he said. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from all from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And the first part of that, who is Zechariah talking about? He's not talking about his own little boy who was just born. He's talking about a descendant of David. His boy was a descendant of Levi. Now he's talking about the coming of God. He's talking about the coming of God in the flesh. He's talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. And as important as the birth of his own son must have been to him, that is overshadowed by what it foreshadowed. See, as much as he and Elizabeth had wanted a baby, and as great an event as this was, Zechariah knows that really what this means is that the ultimate hope is on his way. See, the birth of John was proof that God was on the move, that God was paying attention, that God was keeping His promises, that the wait was over. Notice how Zechariah put it, everything in the past tense. He said, He has come. He has redeemed His people. He has raised up the horn of salvation. He has shown mercy. It's as good as happened, even though Jesus wasn't going to be born for another six months. See, that's the way it is with hope. When we see with the eyes of faith that, that God is on the move, that He's paying attention, that He cares. And then we catch those first glimpses of what God is doing. Our spirits soar. Our hope is confirmed and established. Notice that uh, Zechariah doesn't wait until it's all happened. Right in the midst of the darkness, he overflows in praise and worship. You know, for us, hope is so important. Sometimes our lives are covered with long years of darkness. Maybe it's the long years of financial difficulty. Maybe it's long years of singleness. 
Maybe it's long years of a joyless marriage. Maybe it's long years of a child's rebellion. Maybe it's long years of sickness. And our spirits groan in the midst of these. But we have received the whisper in the dark. We have received the beginning of our hope. Jesus has come already. He's entered our hearts. He's begun to transform us into His image. We've been given what Paul calls the first fruits of our salvation. Freedom from sin, the power of Satan, freedom from our enemies. And, and, And these first fruits ignite in us an unquenchable hope for the glory that is to be revealed. You see, these heartaches of ours may be with us for years, but there is hope. In fact, these heartaches of ours may be with us for as long as we're on this earth. We've got to remember that all of the Old Testament saints who are mentioned in Hebrews 11, they never received what they hoped for until the next life, ultimately. But that hope transformed their attitudes. It transformed their outlook. It transformed their lives. And you see, we have much more than they because Jesus has already come and He has secured the hope for us. He has proved it by coming into our lives and giving us the Holy Spirit as our down payment. And the fact that the Holy Spirit is in us is a guarantee that He will finish the job He has begun. He has, as Zechariah prophesied, given us salvation from our enemies, salvation from guilt, from the power of sin, from Satan's control. He's freed us in order that we might be able to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. You know, the idea of serving God without fear is profound. This isn't talking about the political freedom to worship without interference. Jesus didn't bring that. We enjoy that political freedom for the most part here in this country, but most people around the world don't. And throughout history, Christians haven't. Yet they still serve God without fear. You see, it's not the fear of persecution that ultimately keeps anyone from worshiping God, from serving Him. remember hearing Richard Wormbrandt speak one time. Here was an elderly man whose body was covered with scars from the torture inflicted by his communist persecutors. He had spent the majority of his adult life, actually the majority of his life, in Romanian and Soviet prisons. Yet he told story after story how men and women worshipped God even while their bodies were being beaten or burned shocked. The persecution did not deter them. And if the absence of persecution was the key to vibrant faith, this nation should be covered with nothing but faith. Now you see, the the, the fear that stops us is not a fear of persecution. The fear that stops us, that causes us to shrink back from God's presence, from serving Him and worshiping Him, is the fear that we are unworthy 
and inadequate in His presence. There's a fear that we don't measure up and therefore we, we, we repulse Him, that He's angry with us, that causes us to shrink back, to avoid His presence, to, to go about pursuing our own narrow and trivialized ambitions. But you see, Jesus has rid us of that fear by making us holy and righteous. That's what He describes here. That word holy that, that He uses in, in this verse means pleasing to God. Jesus has made us pleasing to God. Someone God likes to be with. Someone God loves to hear from. Someone God loves to talk to. And Jesus has given us His righteousness. See, these aren't things that that we have to go out and acquire for ourselves. We don't establish our own holiness and righteousness by our own efforts, by our own resolve. These are things that Jesus gives us. In fact, these two words, holiness and righteousness, Paul uses the exact same words in Ephesians 4, verse 23 and 24, when he says, You are being made new in the attitude of your mind, so put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, this true holiness and righteousness is something we put on, like a warm coat. Just our size, provided to us by Jesus. See, He purchased it by His blood on the cross. All we can do is accept it and put it on. And with the covering of that coat, we are delightful to God. In Christ, right now, you are as delightful to God as you ever could be. You're as delightful to God as His own Son is. And He can use you for His glory. See, there's no room for fear or inadequacy. He is more than adequate. All that fear is gone. We can come into His presence, worship Him, and then step out boldly, knowing that He can use our words and our actions and our money and our time to love the people around us. We are free to worship Him without fear, to serve Him without fear. Don't be afraid to teach that Sunday school class. Don't be afraid to talk to that friend about God or, or, or to give that gift or, or, or to comfort that hurting person. Serve Him without fear. That's what Jesus has purchased for you. That's the freedom that you have. And as you do, you begin to experience that hope that soars as we enjoy the first fruits of our salvation, knowing that when He comes again, we'll receive the full payment. We'll receive all that He longs to give us. Now let's look at the uh, last section in our passage. This is the preparation of John. John looks at his uh, little baby and he says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him, to give His people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, 
to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Zechariah turns to his little boy, and he tells him what his mission is. He tells him that his job is to prepare the way for the coming of God. The coming of God the Son. For the coming of God in the flesh. The coming of Jesus. And John's to do this, first by bringing to people the knowledge of salvation. It starts with knowledge. Because people didn't know that God was on the move. They didn't know that God cared. It had been 400 years since they had heard from Him. They'd given up on Him. They just settled into their their, their, uh, confused and empty lives. Some who still worship God. Some who looked daily for that coming. John's call was to, to let them know that he was coming. The majority of the people had lost sight of the fact that God is a loving father who cares for his children, that God is a good shepherd who tenderly cares for his sheep. They had fallen into the satanic delusion that God was just this distant, impersonal, harsh, uncaring power, this kind of heartless authority looming over them, like many people today view God. John was to bring them the knowledge that God is a loving God who is bringing salvation, who would forgive their sins and restore relationship with himself. And that's exactly what John did. He came and he announced that God was coming. And then when God came, John pointed at him to, to Jesus and said, there he is. See, Jesus is the loving God who brings salvation. He purchased our forgiveness. He reconciles, brings us back into relationship with himself. The world didn't know who God was until Jesus. But in looking at Jesus, who he was, what he said, what he did, we can see clearly God as he really is. See, that's what we're studying the book of Luke for. Because we want to see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, we see the Father. When Philip asked Jesus, Jesus looked at him and he said, Philip, don't you know me? Even after I've been with you for so long, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So we want to see Jesus. And back in Luke 1, Zechariah uses a metaphor about those who live in darkness, in the shadow of death. See, the picture here is of of some travelers who don't make it to their destination uh, before dark. And so they're trapped out in the wilderness, in the dangerous wilderness, in the dark, surrounded by wild animals and robbers and maybe enemy soldiers. It's dark. It's a moonless, starless night. They can't see a thing. To take a step would run the risk of stepping off a cliff. To call out might attract predators or, or robbers or enemy soldiers. So they're stuck there. Alone, in the dark, silent, afraid. Death could come at them from any direction and they can't even see it coming. 
Now this is a, a picture of a desperate, hopeless situation. Darkness had defeated them. Now it's always uh, dangerous to be too autobiographical from up here, but I will tell you one story from my foolish youth. I wasn't a real bright kid. Um, one time I was walking on this steep hill, no houses up there, it was real dark, and I was involved in some uh, malicious mischief. This was before I'd given my life to the Lord, I was a teenager, and uh, I threw an egg at a passing car. Like I said, I wasn't a real bright kid, and the uh, car happened to be a police car. <laughs> and the officers jumped out, and I took off running down this steep hill. And it was dark. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. The, the, the trees kind of blocked out the moon and the stars. And the first thing I did was run right into a tree and bang up my knee. But I was motivated, so I got up. And I hobbled down this hill as fast as I could. And a couple hundred yards later, I got to the bottom, and there was a creek there. And before I knew it, I was airborne over the creek. And I slammed into the other side before I was ready, twisted my other ankle. And it was over. I just lay there. I couldn't run anymore. And unfortunately, my pursuers weren't trying to kill me. They probably thought of it, but they were not actually trying to kill me. If they had been, I would have died. See, the darkness had defeated me. Perhaps a more uh, positive illustration. One time, uh, Becky and I were, were doing an activity with our children when they were small. And we were looking at the passage in Isaiah where Isaiah says, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. So we took a candle and lit it in one of the back bedrooms, went to the other end of the house, turned out all the lights to illustrate living in darkness. Well, we had left without meaning to a, a laundry basket, just a short one about this big, full of laundry in the middle of the, of the hallway. And we didn't know it was there. As we're working our way through the darkness, Becky tripped over it and landed on one of our girls. And uh, there was screams and crying. and The whole family kind of ended up in, in a pile trying to figure out what was going on and who was hurt and if everybody was okay. We were bruised and confused. See, living in darkness under the shadow of death is an apt metaphor for our world. People walk around trying to find escape from the emptiness and the pain of life. But they step on each other and they trip over each other and they bump into each other and they hurt each other. Every, every attempt to escape the emptiness and the pain seems to just end in, in, in more confusion, in more pain, in more emptiness, more death. Zechariah says, the sun, the rising sun will come to us from heaven and shine on us to guide our feet to the path of peace. See, the sun has risen. As Malachi put it, the sun of righteousness with healing in his wings has come. That's the good news. We don't have to walk around in the darkness anymore. The light of Jesus has shone in our hearts. He's given us His Word to show us the way. He's given us His Spirit to guide us. He's taken us off of that path of confusion and emptiness. And He's brought us on to the path of peace. And on that well-lit path, we can walk with hearts that are at rest, able to live our lives for God 
able to serve him. The sun has risen and has replaced the despair and the pessimism with hope and peace. Well, this whole passage we've been studying this morning is all about preparation. God prepared the people to listen to Zechariah. Paul, our God, prepared uh, John to to uh, prepare to bring the message of hope. God has prepared us to fully embrace that hope, the person Jesus Christ. The fact is, God always prepares hearts for Christ. Last week, Dr. Mayer talked about how in Ephesus, Paul found Lydia and the other women already prepared. God had been there. God had been whispering into the dark, and their hearts were ready to hear the message of Jesus. I want to make two uh, closing applications to our theme here. First, John the Baptist's ministry really is a picture of our ministry. John's ministry was a ministry of preparation. And so is ours. We don't bring Jesus to people. We merely prepare the way. He comes himself. Until a person encounters Jesus directly and personally, face to face, Jesus entering into their lives, nothing has really ultimately happened. But we can prepare the way. And we prepare the way by bringing hope. Hope that God is a loving Father. Hope that God is a tender shepherd who is on the move who cares about them, who's begun their work, His work in their lives, who brings salvation, who will forgive their sins and restore them to relationship with Himself. By, by loving people in His name, by speaking the truth to them, we can be used to, to ignite that spark of hope that prepares their heart for His coming. Second application I want to make is to the preparation of our own hearts. You see, it was the people who let John's message spark hope in their lives that responded to Jesus. Almost all of Jesus' early disciples were followers of John. They believed the message that God was on the move even before they saw it. It was those who allowed their cynicism and their realism to uh, to cause them to refuse to hope that missed Jesus altogether. See, hope is so essential in our response to God. God's at, at work. God is on the move in your life. Maybe this is the first whisper you've heard in your darkness. But he's whispering. He's at work. Don't allow your your own hardened realism or your self-protection to cause you to turn a deaf ear to his whispers. Don't demand a shout. You know, Zechariah's spirit soared at just the promise. It hadn't happened yet, but Zechariah believed God and he was so sure that it was going to happen that he couldn't hold it in. The, the joy and the praise just welled up inside of him and overflowed as if it had already happened. Trust God like that. No matter what your darkness, no matter what your hurt, allow yourself to hope in Him. He is faithful. 
Reject that hope and your life will be defeated. Live in that hope and your life will be transformed. It is hope that prepares our hearts for His coming. It is hope that prepares our hearts to embrace our Savior. Let's pray.